Hey nurses out there, you know how important it is to stay on top of the latest skills and advancements in your specialty area. At the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, we offer a range of online post-degree certificate programs that will further specialization in the field. From PEDS to organizational leadership to psych and nurse educator, we've got you covered. Learn more and apply at nursing.jhu.edu slash on the pulse. Hi, I'm Tamar Rodney, and you're listening to On the Pulse, a podcast from the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. On this podcast, we take a deep dive into the experiences of frontline providers and researchers. We explore their insights and invaluable stories of how healthcare works in today's world. Joining us today is Dr. Marian Fingerhood to discuss a most timely topic, the opioid crisis, and where we are as a country in the fight to save lives from drug overdoses. Dr. Fingerhood is an assistant professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, a nurse practitioner in adult primary care, a clinical preceptor, and a nursing instructor. Her areas of interest are safe opioid prescribing, identification and treatment of opioid use disorder, and the support and education of nurse practitioners as they transition into their roles as primary care providers. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Fingerhood. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So Dr. Fingerhood, over the last several years, we've heard more and more about the rise of overdose deaths, particularly as a result of fentanyl. And when we add the COVID-19 pandemic to this, it seems like the crisis has grown in severity. So my first question to you is, could you talk us through a little bit about what exactly is fentanyl and what does the current situation in the U.S. look like? So fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, which is uh, the predominant drug on the street. Um, Even patients who have told me that they were looking to buy heroin, when we do drug toxins, they're actually a fentanyl. Um, It's been found to be mixed with cocaine, cannabis, Xanax, methamphetamines, and then most recently, Adderall. It's more than 100 times more potent than morphine and 50 more times potent than heroin. It is an FDA-approved drug for pain, and it has been used for that for more than 50 years. The more illicit form of this has been coming through over the last few years, manufactured, or the pieces are coming from China and from India, then shipped usually to either Canada or Mexico, and then formed into pills and then sent to the United States. You know, there's actually a website, a national website that looks at what a counterfeit pill looks like and what a real one does, and they are really close. So, you know, they're purposely making these pills look exactly like you would pick up in a pharmacy, but they're laced with fentanyl, and some of them are almost all pure fentanyl. That's what's particularly scary, is these pills are specifically made to look like the, quote, real thing. You know, we're looking at how bad it looks across the United States. The CDC estimated that in the end of 2021, over 108,000 people had drug overdose-related deaths, and they tied about 44,000 of them directly to fentanyl. So we're here in Maryland, and from January until September of 21, there were 1,783 deaths. And if you want to put that into perspective for all of 2020, there were 1,731 deaths and only 1,458 deaths in 2019. 
So I wanna go back to a point you just mentioned is that fentanyl is actually a drug for pain. And so it's important to know that um, it's not all use of fentanyl, which is considered having the potential of overdose, but it is a improper illicit use of fentanyl. So thank you for pointing that out. It is a, it's a great drug for um, pain relief, usually done in the hospital. Uh, I had a, a C-section, they use fentanyl to help relieve pain during that. So it's, a, it's not a drug bad uh, in and of itself, but it's illicit uses where the problems arise. We have reports now that overdoses are the leading cause of preventable death among people ages around 18 to 45. This is incredibly above suicide and traffic accidents, also gun violence. How could this ever be possible? There really has been an increase use of illicit medications over the last probably five to 10 years. And according to the CDC, definitely the leading cause of death is unintentional injuries, about 38 to 40% of those in that age group. And many of them, unintentional injuries are related to overdose. The people who actually overdose from medications that they've uh, purchased on the street, especially in the, in the light of fentanyl, these are not intentional at all. They are not taking these in looking to commit suicide. It is more to get the high, to get the positive effects from what they're looking at in the drug. In the past two years, it has been complicated very specifically by COVID-19. People are more using alone. There's that increased stress, anger, and sadness that has been related to the COVID pandemic. You know, illicit drugs are now being laced with fentanyl. People are not actually going out to look for fentanyl, but they are overdosing on it because they don't have anyone there to administer naloxone, which is that they life-saving drug for opioid overdose. So I, I think what I'm hearing from you is, obviously COVID-19 has made it worse due to the isolation factor, you're more alone, which increases your risk. But the flip side of this is what I would love to talk to you about, and is that's the influence of social media. So again, because we are not doing as much face-to-face -face and we've really seen an uptick in the use of social media, you know, especially since the pandemic, but certainly it has been increasing in popularity over the years. There was a recent New York Times article that spoke about, especially young people, accessing drugs through a number of social media sites, things like Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook. The statistics are that about 90% of those pills that are purchased on social media are laced with fentanyls. And what they do is they put in a search looking for Xanax or looking for Percocet. And that search will lead them to a dealer. The dealer then makes the transaction with them, drops it off at their house. They take the medication. Most of the time, they never even see the dealer. Generally, it's the people are not looking for fentanyl on, on uh, social media. They are really looking for Percocet and, and Xanax. The other thing that you'll actually just, just came about recently is not only are they putting it in, in Xanax and Percocet, but we actually saw two deaths of students at Ohio State just in May because it was Adderall that was laced with fentanyl. It's pretty common for students to reach out to try to get Adderall at the time, especially of, of um end of, end of uh, semester exams. And there were about 40 reported overdose 
just with that batch of pills. What's really interesting recently is that there, those major social media sites like Snapchat, Facebook, and Instagram are already trying to change their algorithms to shut down those searches. There was up to 2 million catches in the last year and about 4 million just re changing, changing the, the pattern of where people were searching. There's also Twitter, TikTok, Twitch, and Reddit are expected to do the same thing to actually help prevent these connections to dealers through social media. So we're also talking about a particularly vulnerable group, and that is younger ages who we know are heavily using social media content. Um, how do you think social media especially plays a role with the epidemic among this age group? As you were talking that this is a very highly influenced part of our population. Their brain development isn't fully there. The way that they look at life and the world is very different. They're very easily influenced. Um, it's one of the things that I have, I have children that are in their 20s and just the way they talk about social influencers and people that they see on these social media sites, they have a responsibility, um, those social influencers, but they also have had an awful lot of negative effects on people in this age group. And so social media, we clearly know, has some influence, but outside of social media, how exactly would you say this addiction starts and more, probably more importantly, how does it continue? So I've seen addiction starting in a number of different ways. Traditionally, as a primary care provider, I've seen people who've had accidents or have had injuries and were prescribed medications for pain, like Percocet. And once they have finished their prescription for pain, they've realized that they've gotten some euphoria or some positive feelings from these medications. So they're no longer taking them for pain they're actually taking them to feel well. And that's really how addiction starts for many people. You're given that one dose of medication or you're given that drug by a friend or a colleague or I'm down and someone says, hey, this is gonna make you feel better. And it hits those just those right chemical pathways in your brain. It's actually kind of interesting that they're the same chemical pathways that many of our antidepressants hit. So people are actually using it in some cases to treat mood disorders as well as just treating especially the, the issues that have come up recently in the pandemic. People are anxious, people are depressed. So they're looking for something that's actually gonna help them move through this. And they have easy access to illicit medications. Thank you for that. And I think it's just important to just emphasize that how the addiction starts is not usually out of nefarious means or a bad cause. It's often persons who need help. But staying on that line, for persons who need help when addiction has taken hold, what are some of the warning signs that we should be looking for? Well, as a, as a primary care provider, every patient that I see, I ask them about alcohol use. I ask them about drug use. And the way that I usually ask, are you taking any medications that haven't been prescribed for you? I actually look at it as a as a part of their, their regular medical history. Some of the warning signs that parents may see is sort of a change in personality, being very withdrawn from family members, new 
uh, new friends that their children are associating with. There's a, a lot of cues and actually SAMHSA, which is a national organization, they have actually a campaign specifically towards parents and it's uh, called Talk, They Will Hear You. And it's amazing, it gives a lot of tips and a lot of things for parents in particular to look for, for those, those children who might be at risk for opioid use or illicit use. Great, thanks for sharing that. Um, so we've seen the warning signs as parents, spouses, friends, how do you encourage them to protect their loved ones when they've seen these warning signs? What do they do? The first important thing is just keeping open communication. I think the thing that is most difficult in our society right now is the stigma that surrounds drug use. If you talk to parents who've had a child who've been in, who have been involved in illicit drug use, they feel a sense of shame. That is one thing that we absolutely need to avoid. Most recently, there was a, um, actually just came out in uh, the American College of Physicians this past Friday that Hopkins actually did a collaboration on decreasing stigma, and they did some actual research of providers in the, in the community. It was a collaboration between the School of Medicine, the School of Nursing, and the School of Public Health, and they were really looking at how stigma can actually affect the way that parents and spouses treat those with addiction or with problems with illicit drug use. One of the other things we really need to start looking at is harm reduction strategies. How do we get people to, if they're going to use, to use safely, to identify what is going on? A big push is to find fentanyl test strips across the country so people know the medication that they're taking. And that actually opens the door for additional conversations. That's it. Those are some great suggestions. Thank you. And as we mentioned in our intro, you are a primary care provider. Um, you've worked with individuals who are recovering or who need treatment. What can healthcare providers do to make a difference? I think sort of the, the biggest thing is to make sure that they're providing naloxone to, to any and everyone because you may not be the person who is taking a opioid medication, but you very likely may be the person who comes across someone who, who has overdosed. There is a lot of stigma within the general population, but there's still a lot of stigma within our healthcare providers as well, trying to make sure that they are open to asking patients about their substance use. The other big thing is to get wavered to um, prescribe the medication buprenorphine, which is a treatment, a medical treatment for opioid use disorder. The one thing that I have seen uh, in the last four years, five years almost, that I've been able to prescribe is that it really does make a difference. Talking to other providers and encouraging them to do so has really made a difference in, in general care for patients with opioid use. It's important to also mention opioid waiver training is available in multiple states, and that is something that has been fairly new to help to fight this epidemic. But let's think a little bit larger in terms of policy. In terms of policy, what should we be doing as a country? So I'll give you a little bit of background on sort of where we've come from and where we're going. The big thing, I think, is looking at harm reduction. There has been a lot of increased funding for treatment. The Affordable Care Act actually gave access to more affordable care and Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act gave 181 million each year 
to increase the prevention programs. Then the 21st Century Cures Act, which came out in 2016, um, these uh, developed or established an assistant secretary for behavioral health and substance use, a lot going into treatment and policy for mental health and services for substance use disorder with an emphasis on opioids. The Support Act of 2018, it's the Substance Use Disorder Prevention Promotes Opioid Recovery and Treatment. The funding for states and tribes through grants for treatment, first responder training, development of comprehensive opioid recovery centers, which include medically assisted treatment, counseling, recovery houses, and drug training. I think one of the biggest things that we really need to start looking at is decriminalizing fentanyl test strips. There are still states that consider this as part of drug paraphernalia. This is a major preventive effort. If you can test what you have been given or what you've purchased on the street, if it has fentanyl, you will absolutely prevent those really issues with overdose. Living here in Maryland, there's actually a, a brand new PSA. I've been seeing, a, seeing it on television all the time. And it's before it's too late, Maryland. And what we're seeing is they're, they're actually making sure that people feel comfortable calling 911. If you see somebody who's overdosed, calling this, this number and making sure that the, the person gets the help that they need and it does not connect the person who overdosed with any kind of criminal activity, nor does it the person who actually called, trying to make sure that we keep people alive. We keep people alive so we can help them get treatment. You can't treat someone who's already died. There's also a great uh, website, it's harmreduction.org, that really looks at how to decrease potential harm and to get people into treatment. Those are some powerful reminders and great um, resources that we'll be sure to share. You mentioned earlier that there is a resource from SAMHSA and it's called Talk, They Hear You, which is also available as a mobile app. But in terms of if someone is listening and they are in a desperate situation right now, where would you suggest that they go for help? So there's a national hotline that is put out by SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. The number of the hotline is 1-800-662-HELP. And the, the numbers that correspond to that is 4357. It's available in TTY, English and in Spanish. There's also a way that you can access online treatment. If you have a mobile phone, you can text your zip code to 435748. If you're living within the state of Maryland and it's something that you can look into no matter where you're living, is Maryland has a 211 number or you can go online to 211maryland.org that will find a treatment center that is in your area. So nationwide 1-800-662-HELP and in the state of Maryland, just dial 211. Thank you for saying that. And so the message we're hearing is that 
there has been some work that's done for the opioid epidemic, but my goodness, there's still lots more that should be done. Um, and I want to thank you for sharing your insight, Dr. Fingerhood, and thank you so much for being here today. We need to keep talking about this and raising awareness because what we're doing is saving lives. It is literally a matter of life and death, and it's so important that we keep this topic front and center. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Dr. Rodney, for talking through this really, really important topic with me. And I absolutely agree. This is definitely a case of life and death. And we all have a responsibility to, to watch out for these things and to support their loved ones around us. Thank you. That's so true. And thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of On The Pulse. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone you know and subscribe through Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. You can also find us on the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com slash nurse. Be sure to also check out our On The Pulse blog and Facebook Live series. You can learn more about the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing at nursing.jhu.edu.